0: a thought this morning when I was going over some ideas uh, in terms of the holy days and the meaning of them all, and often we rehearse, at least briefly, the meaning of each one in its setting having to do with the plan of salvation, the purpose of God. And uh, I thought, we sometimes say, well, this one was solemn, and this one's solemn, and this one's something else. What would be the overriding emotion for each of the seasons? This is kind of what came to mind, but you might think it through and come up with something a little different, or you might have a different idea. Certainly not ironclad, because there are a lot of emotions involved with all of them. But I was just thinking of the overriding feeling that each one portrays to us. And with Passover, we've always talked about how solemn uh, it is, and about the forgiveness of our sins that comes. And one of the things that came to my mind was a sense of relief in terms of an emotion, that we come to that time at Passover when we are relieved of the burden and debt of sin over our heads in an official way. So I always feel relieved after Passover. It's just like, huh, I'm glad that we made it to it, I'm glad we got to do it, and glad for what it means. Pentecost is, of course, when the Spirit of God came, uh, picturing the engagement to Christ. Uh, Some of the thoughts that came to mind that it is a very, a time of great inspiration, as in Acts 2, a time of great hope that is imparted by God's Spirit. But Christ did say that he would send the Comforter. So I think a feeling of comfort is something that is very good in in connection with Pentecost. We have the solace, the comfort, the feeling of being protected, that we have help there any time we want to call on it. So it gives us a comfort level uh, that they had after that Pentecost that they did not have. They were insecure uh, from the time Christ left until Pentecost came, and then, oh, wow, here's something exciting. And I think some of that could have to do with us as well. Uh, We've been promised a lot of things in the prophecies of the end time that we have not yet experienced and we're still looking forward to, And when they suddenly arrive, it's going to be a time of great comfort and inspiration to us to know that, hey, it's finally here, God is doing what he said, just as the Holy Spirit descended uh, with great power in a very dramatic fashion. Trumpets imparts a sense of majesty at the resurrection and victory over death. So, feelings of triumph might be uh, fitting for trumpets, where we, we have that victory, we have that win, we triumph over the flesh and become spirit. Uh, atonement, of course, is a solemn commitment to our husband at the wedding ceremony, and so on, and a feeling that comes to my mind is Security. You have been changed to spirit, a piece of trumpets, and then you are secure in the arms of your husband throughout all eternity. I know security is one of the things that a, a human woman uh, treasures above almost anything, is feeling secure, that she's taken care of, she's needed, she's wanted, she's secure in the love of her husband or family, And uh, they seek security, well, among other things, but that's one of the key ingredients to uh, a good marriage, a good relationship, is making a woman feel secure, wanted, needed, and, of course, God with us. (laughs) But when we come to the feast, and this is what I was leading up to, uh, it pictures the time when Christ will have returned, we'll have gone and married Him and come back with Him and start ruling the earth. So it is a, we picture it as a time of great peace and well-being, that everyone will have their needs taken care of, that there will be someone in charge who really understands, who really knows, who knows the solutions. You know, I look at mankind toying with different things, nuclear uh, reactors, uh, all kinds of weaponry, all kinds of scientific medical devices, whatever you want to name, uh, fertilizers in the soil. They're dealing with chemicals and things that they are, in, in a sense, creating out of what's already here, but they don't know the long-term Effect. They can only guess. So they don't even consider the long-term effect beyond the idea of profit. Let's do this because we'll make a lot of money doing this. And they might do some testing, but they turn a lot of drugs and various things loose on the populace without knowing what it's going to do 10, 20, 30, 40 years down the road. Sometimes, like with the thalidomide babies, it was pretty quick, and a lot of horror was created. But I look forward to that time when the God of the universe and His Son will be living here on the earth, and they know the beginning from the end. They know if we do this, it will not pollute the earth. If we do this, it will. We won't do this. To be dealing with leaders who actually have all the answers would be such a joy. Remember when we read about the Feast of Tabernacles and reading the law there in Nehemiah 8, it said they did it with gladness. And when they heard the law, they, they had great joy. Because they had been wallowing along without the law from the time Joshua died. Very shortly after he died, they went into paganism and worship of all kinds of idols again, and the history of Israel is not very good. Most of the time, they disobeyed God. So, each man living according to his own understanding had created chaos and confusion throughout Israel. And when they heard the law of God beginning to be read there in Nehemiah 8, they had great joy and gladness that somebody was explaining what the real rules are. That there is a code of conduct that we need to go by in order to have an ordered, happy, positive, joyful society. So they were overjoyed. And when we think that all the people coming through the Holocaust that is now staring us in the face, those who survive, who live, approximately 100 million, are going to see Christ and the Father and the Bride coming down in the new Jerusalem. And there is going to be such joy and gladness to have God on the earth with the right kind of society that will not end up in the war and famine and desolation that they had just experienced so what joy and gladness there will be now that's a challenge for us here today having just eaten a potluck and feeling comfortable and even perhaps drowsy who knows To go through these eight days as a type of the millennium to come, to keep them with joy and gladness, and that is the the emotion I settled on, is joy for the Feast of Tabernacles, the joy the whole world will feel. And we need to enact that with and among ourselves during this time to be as joyful and as glad as we can be, to work on that aspect of our personality. That is one of the fruits of the Spirit of God, by the way, is joy. And this is a particular time of the year that we can hone in on that particular emotion, that particular feeling inside of having joy and gladness because of what we are doing and what it pictures in the future for the people who survive what is coming. But we can have joy for them, and we can have joy for ourselves that we will be there to help teach them the right ways so that they don't get themselves into the mess that they are in today. So it should be a joyful time for us to go through eight days of this, and I'm including the last great day because it's... Essentially the same scenario, it's just with a different group of people. The millennium is the survivors of the Holocaust, and the last great day then is uh, all those who, were, who lived from Adam until uh, that time are resurrected to physical life and come into that same situation with God ruling on the earth. And what joy that will be for them uh, And many of them will be reunited with their families, their friends, their acquaintances. And even some of them will be reacquainted with us who are already spirit beings. And what gladness and joy that will be when some of us get to meet long-dead relatives. Brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers. Some of our own children that we may have lost whether it was with miscarriages or whether it was with children that got killed accidentally in cars or whatever. We've gone through a lot of mourning and suffering, frustration in this life. And in many cases, we think back when someone dies about, man, I wish I'd have fixed this, or I wish we'd have gotten together and and we have regret and remorse that we didn't repair relationships, and then somebody's gone. We didn't show them the love that we might have felt but ignored or were embarrassed or ashamed or tentative or, you know, shy, whatever. And therefore didn't get the relationship where we wanted it or restore it if it was at one time good and fell apart or whatever. Those people will come alive and we can be there to help their joy. So, let's think about that as we go through these days. Now, if you would turn to Deuteronomy 31, I want to introduce the series for this time. This is near the end of the life of Moses, Uh, and he's telling the people, let's see, let's pick it up, well, let's just, maybe we can kind of go through almost the whole thing. Moses went and spoke these words to all Israel and said, I am 120 years old this day. I can no more go out and come in. Also the Eternal has said to me, You shall not go over this Jordan. So he knew he was about to die. Uh, He knew they were almost ready to go into the promised land. And God had made it clear that Moses, because of an infraction, was not going to go in with them. And then he explains how... Uh, Joshua would do it and that God would destroy the inhabitants of the land ahead of them, defeat them. Verse 5, And the eternal shall give them up before your face that you may do unto them according to all the commandments which I have commanded you. So he was giving them instruction of what they were to do when they went into the promised land. Uh, Be strong and of a good courage. Fear not, nor be afraid of them. Now those are the three of the four things I was trying to say the other day, and I couldn't spit the other one out. He uses those in uh, Haggai. He uses them in Isaiah. He uses them in various places when talking to the end-time church, the, uh, the gathering that is to come. He tells us to be strong, of good courage, to fear not, and to work. There's one that isn't added here, but it's uh, added in those other places. He uses those, I think, again at the end of Zephaniah. So it's it's used quite a bit. Now remember that Moses was preparing these people and preparing their attitudes to go into the promised land. And here we are now at the end of this age, I think on two counts, preparing to deal with the promised land. First comes the gathering of 10% of the church, to go in and build the latter temple, to reconstruct the true Jerusalem when the command to build it is given. And then after that, it is defiled and the great tribulation occurs. So we are very, very near those events. So what Moses is saying here is things that were repeated in Zephaniah and Haggai and various other places to the end-time church. Moses is called a prophet as well. So, these words have great meaning for us. We need our minds, our emotions, our attitudes prepared for the job that is just before us, or the jobs that are just before us. Uh, And everything applies now as it did then. So he tells them not to be afraid, for the eternal your God, He it is that does go with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you. Paul repeated that in the New Testament, saying that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And mentions other things as well, but that He would never leave us nor forsake us. He guarantees that He will be there. In fact, He says He'll come and dwell with us there in Zechariah 2. Then it will truly be Emmanuel, God with us. He tells us in Isaiah 8, not to fear the Confederacy or the New World Order that is coming, but to fear Him, because He will take care of us. So there are many, many things I could go to and turn to in all the prophecies that will fit perfectly with the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, But I want to stay on point and not go to all those because we would be here for months and months. But we've been there, and perhaps just little reminders like this as we go, so that we are sure that we tie together what we are going to be studying during this feast with ourselves and with the end time, not just some ancient history. And Moses called to Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and of good courage, for you must go with his people to the land which the Eternal has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall cause them to inherit it. Now, I believe that we have been poised uh, just outside these Canaan mountains here by God for a purpose. And at some point then, he is going to cause us to go into the area of Jerusalem and Zion, and have control of it, and he will protect us while we do his work. So we are poised to go in just as they were. We can't go in yet, can we? These things are controlled by the government. I don't know how long it's going to last, but at this point it is. So we can't do anything yet, but we're here preparing, getting ready to do what God would have us do. And he has shown us, in many ways, that this is the right area to be in. We've been over that. So we will inherit it. Verse 8, in the eternal, he it is that does go before you. He will be with you, he will not fail you, neither forsake you, fear not, neither be dismayed. Now he said that to the people, then he said it to Joshua, who would be doing the leading, so that he personally felt strengthened. And Moses wrote this law and delivered it to the priests, the sons of Levi, which bore the ark of the covenant of the eternal and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, and the year uh, in the solemnity of the year of release, in the Feast of Tabernacles, When all Israel has come to appear before the Eternal, your God, in the place which he shall choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Gather the people together, men and women and children, and your stranger that is within your gates, that they may hear and that they may learn and fear the Eternal, your God, and observe to do all the words of this law. That's what they did there in Nehemiah 8. Uh, We read that just recently. And they said that it had not been done in Israel since Joshua died. And Moses is addressing Joshua here and telling them that this is to be done, and then it stopped. Now, I'm remiss because, as we understand it, and we may not be perfectly right, but the best information we have, last year was the seventh year of the cycle, the year of release. I had Jerusalem on my mind, and we were there, uh, so we talked about that for the most part, and I did not think of this. Uh, But I did think of it recently. And I thought, well, I'm late, But uh, maybe it's better to be late than never. (laughs) Uh, So I asked God to forgive me for not going through this last year and decided that I better just get it done now and uh, try to, even though late, uh, fulfill this responsibility. The importance of it is still here in any case. Um, So that's what I want to do during this feast. Now, let's go on down here to verse 29 of chapter 31. Uh, well, verse 27. For I know your rebellion and your stiff neck. Behold, while I am yet alive with you, this is Moses again speaking, this day you have been rebellious against the eternal, how much more after my death? They had started out murmuring right after crossing the Red Sea. And they continued to murmur throughout the 40 years of wandering until their carcasses dropped in the desert. And Moses had had, I'm sure, quite a fill of rebellion and stiff-necked, stubborn Israelites from backsliding heifers by then. So he knew them pretty well when he said what he said here. And how much worse is it going to get after I die? Now, they did honor Joshua for quite some time, because even as the Red Sea had parted uh, before Moses, the Jordan River had backed up during flood time when it was time for them to cross into the Promised Land with Joshua. So, they saw very clearly that Moses, God, through Moses, had passed the mantle to Joshua in that case. And he was to lead them, so they did honor him while he was alive. And that's why it does state there in Nehemiah that upon Joshua's death, uh, they went right back into paganism. They quit doing the feasts, which had been instituted forever. But let's go on down here. Uh, Verse 28, gather to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to record against them. What is he expressing there? He is expressing a concern for the future. In other words, I'll rehearse history, I'll tell you you're stubborn, stiff-necked, and rebellious, And I want all the elders here to hear and understand history because it will repeat itself. That's his point. And he says that. I want to witness against you, for I know that after my death you will utterly corrupt yourselves and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you, and evil will befall you, in the latter days. This is a prophecy then that was scheduled to be enacted throughout Israel's history even up until and through the latter days. So Deuteronomy is very much a now book because you will do evil and the sight of the eternal, to provoke him to anger through the works of your hands. And we provoked God here at the end, and he has scattered the church. So Moses' works have been and are being fulfilled on both spiritual Israel, the church, and physical Israel, the nation, which we see falling apart now, right in front of our very eyes. Now, in a way, that's kind of going to the end of the story. But I felt it was important to go back there and read that command to do this, but also to grasp firmly in our minds that this is an end-time book, just as much as Daniel or Isaiah or the book of Revelation or any of them. So as we approach it, we can approach it with that mindset, that understanding, that we're not just reading some ancient history here for the sake of reading it because it's in the Bible. No, there is a very strong message, some very poignant things here that we need to consider. So let's go back then to the first of the book of Deuteronomy. This book summarizes... Israel's history, especially under Moses. He wrote the first five books of the Bible, Deuteronomy being, Deuteronomy being the fifth one that he wrote uh, at the very end of his life. So he goes through. We don't, we don't need Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus read uh, in that sense because Deuteronomy encapsulates the whole period of time and then projects forward from there. So, as an experienced leader and a prophet of the future, Moses produced the book of Deuteronomy. And, again, he wrote it at the end of the wandering, when he was preparing them to go into the promised land. We are about to enter that area that has the sacred holy sites of the promised land. And we are also preparing to go into the kingdom of God, which is the greatest promised land. But it will be in this area as well. Of course, it will go all around the world at that point, in the millennium. Anyway, this is a preparatory book then. Chapter 1. These be the words which Moses spoke to all Israel on this side Jordan, in the wilderness, in the plain, over against the Red Sea between Paran and Tophel and Laban and Hazaroth and uh, Dizahab. He may not have penned all the words himself. He may have had someone as a scribe there. Uh, he may have done most of this orally and someone was writing it out, and then uh, it became a scroll. But he's still the author regardless. Then he says, parenthetically, there are eleven days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir unto Kadesh Barnea. There are little clues through the Bible that don't mean much to us because we don't know the original locations But I think they were included. You know, there's a lot of detail in here that might not mean much today, but someday it will. When we have information that will make it come alive. For instance, and I've used this example, I think I did last year, when you read, I forget, it's in Luke, I think, where he says that Bethany was at Mount, the Mount of Olives, and it was 15 furlongs, I think it was, from Jerusalem. And I figured that out, and it comes out to about 1.83 miles, a little over one and three-quarters miles from Bethany to Jerusalem. And Bethany was at the Mount of Olives. Now, that didn't mean anything to me five years ago. Didn't mean anything to me at all. Now it means a great deal, because I've been to Jerusalem in the Middle East, And I walked from the city wall, the gate, I think the Lion's Gate, across a little draw there, a little bridge, across the street actually, and then you start climbing what they call the Mount of Olives. It's, my memory would be faulty on this perhaps, it wasn't very far. I remember going out of the wall, down some steps, crossing the street, going up a few steps, and then hit the trail going up. It might have been 100 yards, 200 yards, the most, and to the top of the hill that they call Mount of Olives probably was no more than 300 yards. wasn't very far. It certainly wasn't 15 furlongs. It wasn't a mile and three quarters. So now that means something to me. It means that that can't be the Mount of Olives because it's not as far from Jerusalem as the Bible says it should be. Very simple. Now, this one will mean something someday because I believe that God is going to provide for us ancient maps that are going to show where all the cities of Israel in the Promised Land were. All the sites that are mentioned in the Bible will suddenly take on great meaning when you have a map that shows you where they were. The stuff in the Middle East doesn't fit at all. How do the views of Mount Hermon fall on Zion when Hermon over there is 80 miles away across a desert? They don't. Mount Hermon has to be close enough to the true Zion that the clouds and the mist would come down on Zion. Has to be, because that's what the Psalms say, or the psalmist says. Can you think of a place where that might occur? I can. Been there and looked down over Zion from the spots. Has to be Mount Hermon. Couldn't be anything else. So you can put a few things together when you understand what the book in the Bible says. And if you have some clues, things fit. But they don't fit over there. I look forward to the times when we have ancient historical records and maps to show us where everything was. And you know what? They're all going to fit this book perfectly. So verse 2 is telling us more than might meet the eye. Uh, It's giving us a distance. And then we'll understand. And it came to pass in the fortieth year, in the eleventh month, on the first day of the month, that Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all that the eternal had given him in commandment to them. So Fortieth year of their wandering, eleventh month, they were about a month away from going in at this point. And he had slain Sihon, the king of the Amorites, which dwelt in Heshbon, Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, which dwelt at Ashtaroth in Edrei, or Edrei. On this side Jordan, in the land of Moab, began Moses to declare this law. So he didn't cross the Jordan, he was on the east side of it at that point. And uh, God starts talking here through Moses about the things that God had done. The Eternal, our God, spoke to us in Horeb, or Sinai, saying, You have dwelt long enough in this mount. All right, we've had the law here. uh, You've disobeyed. We had the tablets broken. uh, We had to redo it. Uh, You've been here long enough. Now let's move on. Turn you, and take your journey, and go to the Mount of the Amorites, and unto all the places near thereunto, in the plain, and the hills, in the vale, and in the south, and by the seaside to the land of the Canaanites, and to Lebanon, unto the great river, the river Euphrates. I've seen evidence that perhaps the Atlantic Ocean is what they referred to as the Euphrates in that day. Behold, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the eternal swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to them and to their seed after them. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had walked the promised land, and Israel had been cast out, taken into captivity in the Mitzrayim, lived there 430 years, been released, and now wandered another 40 years, and they were to go back to the land that God had given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Even as Israel was returned after a long captivity to this land and was allowed to come back here in the early 1600s. And, still and yet, the promised land, specifically the site of Jerusalem, is uninhabited and will have to be given back to God's people in order to fulfill the end-time prophecies. So we are sitting, even as they were, ready to do something, ready to go to work, ready to do what God wants done at this end time. Behold, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land." And I spoke to you at that time, saying, I am not able to bear you myself alone. Verse 9. The eternal your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are this day as the stars of the heaven for multitude. So they must have been, we've estimated a minimum, three and a half million coming out of uh, slavery, and they may have reproduced a great deal in the desert, Uh, they weren't real busy with much of anything. And they have had lots of kids, and uh, then the originals died. But if three and a half million had produced several children per couple during that period of time, even though the parents may have died, they may have been a much, much larger contingency of people at the end of 40 years than when they first started. You know, if you start with three and a half million, and they're productive, as the Egyptians had said the Israelites were, uh, this could have been... 9, 10, 11, 12, who knows how many millions of people might have been standing there ready to go into the promised land. I don't know that I ever speculated on how many were going in at that point. We'd always counted them up, 600,000 men uh, when they came out of Mitzrayim because the scripture says that plus women and children and a mixed multitude. So it's kind of easy to get a handle on that but this would be hard not knowing how many they had produced during that 40 years. Anyway, verse 11, The eternal God of your fathers make you a thousand times so many more as you are, and bless you as he has promised you. So the land they were going into could not have been permanently uh, that section, which right here, measuring it out just for instance, would have gone from about Provo down to the Grand Canyon, and from almost the border of Nevada to just east of uh, Bryce Canyon is the size of area that we're talking about here in the original promised land. But remember, God said on two or three different occasions that he would expand that, or had intentions of expanding it. So if there were 10, 12, 15 million of them or more at that point, uh, it was going to be multiplied by thousands or a thousand times. Big population. Uh, how can... Uh, well, I probably wouldn't have reached that until recently. He's talking hundred million, hundreds of millions possibly here. And You know, we've got 315 million right now in America alone. Uh Verse 12, how can I myself alone bear your burden, your cumbrance or encumbrance, of uh, that weight that he carried, and your burden and your strife? That many people who were stubborn, stiff-necked, and rebellious would have been quite a weight, including all the fighting and arguing and miscontent and malcontent, There was among them. So he said in verse 13, "...take you wise men and understanding, and known among your tribes, and I will make them rulers over you." Remember, Jethro had counseled him. Moses, you can't handle all this. You've got to appoint other leaders to handle the smaller issues, and then you only handle the very biggest uh, decisions. And you answered me and said, "The thing which you have spoken is good for us to do." So I took. So he's he's reviewing here the past. I took the chief of your tribes, wise men and known, and made them heads over you, captains over thousands, captains over hundreds, captains over fifties, and captains over tens, and officers among your tribes. So they got organized. With that many people uh, unorganized, you would have chaos. Uh, one man trying to answer all the questions of that many people and trying to settle all the differences of opinion and arguments and fights of that many people. Impossible. And I charged your judges at that time saying, Hear the causes between your brethren and judge righteously between every man and his brother and the stranger that is with him. So whatever the relationship was where there was a, an argument They were to settle it, and that is what God has ordained from the very beginning and did in the early New Testament church as well. He placed men in charge, the ministry of the New Testament, and they were there to settle things when they got out of hand. That's what Matthew 18 really is all about, is you should settle everything you possibly can one-on-one between the combatants, those in disagreement. Every effort should be made for those two people to settle the issue and to dwell together in peace after having settled it. Then, if that appeared impossible, you could get two or three people as witnesses of what was the testimony being given to help make a judgment and if even that didn't solve it, then you took it to the church, that is, to the administrators that God had placed in charge. It's a misnomer to think that anything was put to the vote of the majority of the congregations. That was never done. Even after Matthew 18 was written, uh, in the New Testament history as provided in the Acts and Epistles, that was never done. Uh, Paul told the Corinthians, here the judgment has been made, now you carry it through. So Paul made the judgment there in the Corinthian church with the incestuous matter. And then he instructed them after the man had repented, now you got an attitude about the poor guy and he's repented, accept him back. He didn't leave it up to a vote of the congregation. He made the judgment and told the congregation what to do in no uncertain terms. That's the way it was administered in the New Testament. So when it says take it to the church, it doesn't mean that you stand up on a stage and the charges are read to everyone and then they vote on yes or no or guilty or not guilty. God doesn't do that. He never has, never will. But He did, as He did here with Moses, have captains, those in charge of various ranks, as he tells us in Ephesians 5 and 1 Corinthians 12, to handle those things. When it came to a case of of disfellowshipment, for instance, the ministry, well, I just gave you one, the ministry was the one called upon to make that decision, to banish, to ostracize, to shun, to disfellowship from the group because... What they were teaching, preaching, doing, saying was communicable and could damage others. So they were to be removed from the flock until they got over those attitudes and negativities and whatever it was that they had. Then they were to be reinstated, and Paul showed that by reinstating that man and then telling everybody he is back in, accept him as such. So when it says, take it to the church that's what it means and that's what Moses is talking about here on the form of government that God sets up anyway verse 17 you shall not request or respect persons in judgment but you shall hear the small as well as the great you shall not be afraid of the face of man for the judgment is God's and the cause that is too hard for you Bring it to me, and I will hear it. So, this is instruction for us, and it is the same uh, form of organization that God set up in the New Testament. You know, they didn't, if somebody sinned a sin that required stoning, for instance, under Moses, they didn't take a vote on whether to stone an individual or not. The parents were told that they had a rebellious son, that they were to be the ones that put the son up for stoning. And the authorities that were there looked into a matter to determine guilt and then determined who should be stoned and who should not, who was guilty and who was not. And then they directed the people to do the stoning. That's the way God set it up. It was never a majority rule issue. And that's what he is saying here. If it's too hard, you bring it to me and I will hear it. So, you try to settle it. If you can't, you get a couple witnesses. And if they can't get it all worked out, so everybody's at peace, then bring it to the authorities that be and they will make a judgment. And don't fear to make a judgment because God will render his decision in the matter. He also tells them in another place that whatever, if you bring the issue there to have a decision made, once it's made, you have to live by it. You cannot turn aside from it. Because you're taking it before those those whom God has appointed to render that kind of insight, and judgment to prayerfully look into it and determine who's guilty and to what extent they are and so on, and then pass out mercy or punishment in due course. And I commanded you at that time all the things which you should do. So, it was much more than just that. Verse 19, And when we departed from Sinai, we went through all that great and terrible wilderness, which you saw by the way of the mountain of the Amorites, as the Eternal our God commanded us, and we came to Kadesh Barnea. And I said to you, You are come to the mountain of the Amorites, which the Eternal our God does give to us. So, the Amorites had settled there uh, in the Promised Land after Israel had been taken captive. And God was going to chase those peoples out of there. Behold, the eternal your God has set the land before you. Go up and possess it, as the eternal God of your fathers has said to you, Fear not, neither be discouraged. Remember, they were worried about giants. Uh, These Amorites were sons of Ham, uh, a black race. There's so many of these things that add up, and we talked about it last feast. They have found no evidence whatsoever of any presence of black people in the Middle East, where Israel is today. There's just no evidence of it there at all. And they have never found any evidence of giants in that land. They've never found any skeletons of giants at all. And yet the American Archaeological Society, and even the Smithsonian, if they'll admit it, know that there were giants all over North America and this country, and even here in the Southwest. Men from 8 to 17 feet tall, they found skeletons of, with double rows of teeth, that you could put your whole head in their mouth, if you so chose. But that's one of the analogies or the examples they use, that it was big enough that you could put your head in their mouth. Lots of evidence of giants in this country. Anyway, moving on. Uh, Verse 22, And you came near to me, every one of you, and said, We will send men before us, and they shall search search us out the land, and bring us word again by what way we must go up. And into what cities we shall come? And the saying pleased me well, and I took twelve men of you, one of a tribe, and they turned and went up into the mountain, and came unto the valley of Eshcol, and searched it out. And they took up the fruit of the land in their hands, and brought it down to us, and brought us word again, and said, It is a good land which the eternal our God does give us. Notwithstanding, you would not go up, but rebelled against the commandment of the Eternal, your God. Remember, only Joshua and Caleb gave a good report and said, let's go for it. The rest of the spies and the rest of Israel said, Oh, wait, they're too big. They're too mean. We can't do this thing. You murmured in your tents and said, because the Eternal hated us, he has brought us forth out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. People just have trouble getting it, don't we? All we went through at the Red Sea, and all the lessons supposedly learned, immediately forgotten the moment word came back that there's big grapes, but there's big guys standing behind them with swords. So they sat in their tents and murmured and complained and griped all over again. I wonder if Moses had migraines. Never thought of it. I wonder if God gets headaches. (laughs) Well, if it's possible, we'd give them to him, wouldn't we? What if we sent spies today... Into a land that it had been revealed God had promised, and reported it to the church that God had said, Go to a certain area, and there I will deliver you. How many people would gripe and complain and murmur and say, That's crazy? I can tell you. Approximate number, I think, that would have that reaction. It would be about 99.99999999, somewhere out there, is about how many it would be. Just like it was with these ancient Israelites. Verse 28, "Where, where shall we go up? Our brethren have discouraged our hearts, saying, The people is greater and taller than we. The cities are great and walled up to heaven. And moreover, we have seen the sons of the Anakims there, the tall ones, the giants. Then I said to you, Dread not, neither be afraid of them. The eternal your God, which goes before you, he shall fight for you according to all that he did for you in Mitzrayim before your eyes. Do you remember history? Do you remember what God has done? Do we remember that God called us out of this world and gave us the truth under Herbert Armstrong and how we took it for granted and now have been scattered and God is now preparing to gather us again and add a few more to make up for those who wouldn't? Do we not remember are we again beginning to give up or to get go tired or weary or give up or say, oh yeah, row, yeah, wolf, wolf. What did Mr. Armstrong always used to say? The, uh, the gun lap. Gun lap after gun lap after gun lap. We just about got gunned down. We have a history, people. We really do. And Moses wrote these words that they might overcome history. And he wrote them and preserved them for us that we might overcome history. Now, ultimately, these people did, remember. Don't be discouraged here. After he told them where the bear went through the buckwheat, they finally got the point. The Jordan River went back, and they did go across. It did happen. God had promised it, and then they began to say, oh, yeah, right, right, sure, sure. And then it happened. And it's going to again. All the things that you and I have read and all the prophecies prior to the millennium are going to happen. And we're a lot closer now than we were when we began reading those. What does he say? He says that seven, even eight principal men there in Micah 5 will go out against the Assyrian when he comes into our land and the Assyrian is going to be destroyed before our very eyes. He says two men will go out and preach as a witness against the world and they cannot be killed until the time is right. Then they will. But fire will miraculously come from their mouths and kill anyone who tries to harm them. Red Sea isn't all over. Jordan backing up isn't all over. There are still events ahead that Jeremiah says will make us forget the Red Sea and the Jordan. Where is it? Jeremiah thirty or thirty one, somewhere right in there. So it'll be so awesome, so dramatic. That you won't even remember this in the past. But now, we need to rehearse the past as well as read the future to convince ourselves that there really is a God and he will do what he says he will do. Do we believe? Do we trust him? Is his word inviolate or not? So let's go on. Uh, it says, God will fight for you then in verse 31. And in the wilderness, where you have seen how that the eternal your God bore you as a man does bear his son. And all the way that you went until you came to this place, God carried them through the desert. There was no water for them. There was no food for them. God had to carry them through all of that. He provided manna. He provided quail. He provided water. Everything that they needed to survive until the 40 years was finished. So He carried you until you came to this place. There they were, ready to cross the river. They were right on the edge of... Of all these prophecies being fulfilled and God's promises being completed, and they would not believe it. Do we begin to understand why Moses had told them you're stiff necked and stubborn and rebellious there in chapter 31 we read at the beginning? Yet in this thing, you did not believe the eternal your God. Verse 33, who went in the way before you to search you out a place to pitch your tents in, in fire by night to show you by what way you should go, and in a cloud by day, protected them from the heat and gave them light to see when they traveled at night. He was with them day and night for forty years. And they murmured and murmured and complained and wouldn't believe. You, you and I can't imagine that, can we? If God would give us fire and a cloud and rain food down on the ground every morning, man, we'd believe God. How could you deny such a thing? How could you? But we do. In day-to-day life, we let things get to us. We lose our focus. We lose our purpose. We get caught up in other things. And as a result, we wander about and don't focus on the spiritual in the way that we need to. We are so human. But you believe it. I believe it. I've read it in the Bible over and over and over again. Preached it now for nearly 17 years. Over and over and over. And the story hasn't changed. It's all in there. So we have the past to consider and how God raised up Herbert Armstrong and preached the gospel as far as it went and called the people. And then we see the god prophesied that it would all be blown apart and spewed out of his mouth god has been here at every juncture all the way through doing what he said he would do has he not has the church been scattered have we been spewed out god is present brethren it isn't the good part of the promises, is it? No, but it's still part of the promise. And it absolutely proves God's presence with the church. That the good and the bad both happen. The good happened and that many were called. The bad happened that we were scattered for a good purpose. To cause us to repent, to turn to God with our whole hearts so that he could bring us the good promises. And about 10% of the church today, in all this misery, are preparing their hearts to repent and turn to God. And I hope that we are among that ten percent who will heed and who will learn something from this trial. A small one was mentioned this morning in the sermon. Was there anything to learn? Well, we have a really, really big one here before us with the scattering of the whole church and the confusion and frustration that has gone through everyone. but there's something to learn. There's a lesson in this trial, and that is turn to God. And if we will so do, then all these good things we have read about and His protection are going to come on us when the New World Order brings down its boot. And God will cause our enemies to flee from us. He will cause bad government to leave us alone. And he will destroy them if they try to hurt us, just as he destroyed ancient Assyria without them having to lift a hand. He will do the same again, he promises us in Isaiah. All we have to fear is fear itself. He didn't know what he was talking about, but we did. We do not need to fear what is coming. We need to fear He who is able to kill both body and soul. He can spare our lives. You've got to believe it. Yet in this thing you did not believe the Eternal your God, who went in the way before you. Uh, yeah, we already read that. Uh, verse 34 The Eternal heard the voice of your words and was angry and swore, saying, Surely there shall not one of these men of this evil generation see that good land which I swore to give to your fathers. Save Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, uh, Jephunneh. he shall see it. And to him will I give the land that he had trodden upon, and to his children, because he has wholly followed the Eternal. And Caleb may not have even been an Israelite. He may have been part of the mixed multitude. But he was going to be given inheritance there as well. Also the Eternal was angry with me for your sake, saying, You shall not go in there. Angry at Moses and got angry at all of them except Caleb. And the next one here, verse 38, But Joshua the son of Nun, which stands before you, he shall go in there. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. So, only two men would be allowed to go in Caleb and Joshua, of those originals. The rest were children born in the wilderness. Now, does God mean business when He makes promises, when He gives judgment? They did all die out there, and the children did go in. So, both the bad and the good happened. Moreover, your little ones, which you said should be a prey, and your children, which in that day had no knowledge between good and evil, they shall go in there, and to them will I give it, and they shall possess it. Part of their murmuring was, You're going to let all our kids die. You brought us out of here to die, and you're going to cause all our kids to die too. That was one of their complaints. Baseless. Didn't fit what God had told them. He had told them, you're going to die out here, but your kids are going to go in. They didn't believe that either. You brought our kids out here to die. You're a child hater. Child murderer, they told God. Verse 40, but as for you, turn you and take your journey into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. Then you answered and said to me, We have sinned against the Eternal, we will go up and fight according to all that the Eternal our God commanded us. And when you had girded on every man his weapon of war, you were ready to go up into the hill. And the Eternal said to me, Say to them, Go not up, neither fight, for I am not among you, lest you be smitten before your enemies." So I spoke to you, and you would not hear, but rebelled against the commandment of the Eternal, and went presumptuously up into the hill. And the Amorites which dwelt in that mountain came out against you, and chased you, as bees do, and destroyed you, and seared even to Horma. Horma. And you returned, and wept before the Eternal, but the Eternal would not hearken to your voice, neither give ear to you. When God told them to fight, they would not fight. When God told them not to fight, they said, Well, I've already got my armor on, I'm going to fight anyway. Never, ever would they do what God said. It was just beyond them. Do we have a nation today that is the same way? Will do nothing, God says, throw his whole book almost out the window. Godless. Idolatry. Worshipping anything but God. And believing everyone but God. How many believe God? How many? Very few. 10% of roughly 150,000 might be somewhere around seven to 15,000. I don't know how many there were who were converted or how many were called. But he says about 10% will be chosen out of that. Reminds me of Gideon. Started out with all those people, and then God got rid of some, and He got rid of some more, and He got rid of some more, and He got it down to 300. He says, all right, now here's here's an army I can work with. Get your little pitchers, put your swords down, and we're going to go whoop them. And did. So you abode in Kadesh many days according to the days that you abode there. Well, I made it through one chapter today. So we'll stop there and next time we'll hit two.